Welcome to the Ignatius Press Podcast. I'm Mark Brumley. I hope you enjoy the discussion in this episode. For more information about Ignatius Press, check out our website at ignatius.com. Welcome. Hi, I'm Mark Brumley, president of Ignatius Press, and I'm here today with Robert Riley, the author of the new book, America on Trial, A Defense of the Founding. The title of the book sounds a bit like a headline. I guarantee you we didn't choose it to be a headline. We didn't know that it would be uh, published during a time in which the title sounded like a headline, but it's very pertinent to the headline nature of the title, and as we'll see in, uh, in our discussion. Let me tell you a little bit about uh, Robert Riley. He's the director of the Westminster Institute. In his 25 years of government service, he served as special assistant to the president, director of, the Voice, director of Voice of America. He's also a senior advisor for information strategy to the Secretary of Defense, and he's taught at the National Defense University. I'm giving you just the highlights, ladies and gentlemen. He attended Georgetown University and Claremont Graduate University. He's published on a wide range of topics. I think the first time I ever read an article of yours, Bob, was probably in Crisis Magazine, but I I may be wrong because your your name is all over the place. You've written on American politics, uh, American morality as well, foreign policy, classical music. In fact, you published a book with us called Surprised by Beauty, which perhaps we'll have an opportunity to talk about in another session. Other books include Making Gay Okay, How Rationalizing Homosexual Behavior is Changing Everything, and The Closing of the Muslim Mind. So that's just a sampling of the topics our guest today has written on. And as I say, today's topic is the is America on Trial, his latest book. We've seen uh, media scenes of violence, police officer with his knee on the neck of a black American. We've seen protests, some peaceful, some violent with fires and looting and attacks on innocent people, a series of attacks on various emblems, statues, uh, both secular and sacred. So in many respects, we could say, what's going on? Is America on trial? Uh, I'd like to start out by asking you Bob, whether you think America is on trial, and if America is on trial, what are the charges? Who's the prosecution? And I'm taking it you're you're the defense attorney. What's your line of defense? Well, thank you, Mark, for that generous introduction. I think America has always been on trial to some extent or another, but uh, the trial has been particularly intense obviously in times of war. As you may know, the book is dedicated to the memory of the uncle I never met, Major Robert R. Egan, who volunteered for World War II and lost his life. He thought America was worth defending. And uh, I say in the book that it still is, and for the same reasons. And that is that the founding principles of the United States are good, morally good, philosophically right. Now, that's been contested. It certainly wasn't a perfect founding because we know 
about the presence of slavery, which the founders were almost unanimously against and who hoped that it would eventually die out, as indeed it was on its way uh, to dying out because the simply the economics of slavery in the South began to uh, diminish so greatly. But uh, unfortunately, that was only resolved through a violent civil war. But the Union won, 13, 14th Amendment finally brought the full promise of the equality of all men and the inalienable human rights to all Americans. So it's been a long journey. The problem now is that the prosecution is saying on the left what it always has been saying, that America is unworthy, uh, that uh, the new 1619 project contends that it was born racist and has remained racist. The attacks from the left are not new. I lived through the 1960s, was very familiar with them then. Uh, many of them are the same attacks. What is unusual are the attacks from the conservative Christian quarters and more specifically from some Catholic Christians. Now there the charge is a little different, but not so far as to say it doesn't share some things with the attacks from the left. It says, America was a poison pill with the time release formula and were its victims. That is, the American founding was based on notions of radical individual autonomy that were the principles of the enlightenment and that this country is a creature of the enlightenment and therefore was fatally compromised in its foundations, that the founding indeed was America's original sin. And we're now paying the price more fully than say people did in the past because there was still that buttress of widespread Christianity. Uh, and as Christianity has receded, say these critics, the uh, enlightenment principles of radical individual autonomy are made more manifest. Now, we have seen uh, statements of this individual autonomy in other quarters, most particularly in some key Supreme Court decisions especially those written by Justice Anthony Kennedy, when he uses the term individual autonomy to say that people get to make up whatever notion of the meaning of the universe uh, they wish to, and that homosexual so-called marriage is an exercise of that individual autonomy, which is in our constitution, no less. The I missed that part yeah. in the Constitution. I have, I've read it. I just, yeah. So, well, it's in a penumbra, Mark. You know, it's, <laughs> it's in one of those penumbras. And our our dear Catholic uh, conservative critics say he's right. Justice Kennedy basically is right. It is there. The difference is they condemn it, whereas Justice Kennedy celebrates it. 
Now, my defense is they're both wrong. It's not there. Yes, there were Enlightenment influences on the founding, but not the ones they think. The founding of the Enlightenment wasn't a homogeneous thing. It had different aspects. There was the Scottish Enlightenment. The worst part of it was, of course, the French Enlightenment, which led to something very different uh, to the American Revolution, the French Revolution. We could go into that a little later. As you know, I have a chapter in the book comparing those two things. Um, But the book is not just a rebuttal of the accusations saying where they get it wrong. It's, It's more broadly an answer to the question I pose, what made the American founding, what made democratic constitutional government possible? What ideas made it conceivable in the first place? That okay. man was too long. That answer was too long. No, no, that's okay. So I just want to kind of summarize things a little bit. So you talked about uh, using this trial image, uh, critics on the right or people on the, on the political right who are, uh, you know, part of the prosecution, as it were, against America, and then people on the on the excuse me, people on the left, political left, who are part of the prosecution, and people on the on the political and theological right, who are believers, and, and specifically who are Catholics, who are criticizing the founding, and they're criticizing the founding somewhat for different reasons, although. There's some sort of deep philosophical uh, commonality that the left thinks ought to be our self-understanding. And you you gave the example of of Justice Kennedy and some of his uh, language in in various decisions. And those people on the left and these critics on the right agree in saying that America is flawed at its founding. Whereas the people on the left want to change it and move it in a certain direction, the people on the right just basically say it's not salvageable. We need to we need to do something different. Um, I'm I'm fascinated by that. I know there are many Catholics who, and and Christians more generally, who have one of the have a criticism of the American founding that it's leaders, the founding fathers, were deists, and as you say, they were influenced by the Enlightenment, that they were nefariously influenced by the Masons and various uh, ideas like that. You want to go back to other sources of the founding. So I I interrupted you, but I'm, I'm interested in understanding who these other sources or what these other sources are that you think shows that the founding, the American founding, is actually a good thing. Yeah, Mark, if I just briefly comment on on some of what you said, uh, amongst the American founders, uh, there weren't any deists. There were were a few theists, but Mm -hmm. not theists. Mm -hmm. And they were overwhelmingly Christian, deeply Christian. Now, the other sources of, um, not the other sources, when I, I trace the lineage of the ideas that made the founding conceivable, we take a journey 
way back to ancient Israel and the revelation of the one God to Genesis, to the announcement that this one God made everything from nothing and that everything he made was good. There's no demiurge of good and a demiurge of evil fighting it out. Um, everything is good. And what is especially good? Man. How do we know? Well, he's made in the image and likeness of God. Any conception of human rights today, secular, non-secular, is in some way a beneficiary of that revelation in Genesis. I would go so far as to say that Genesis is the foundation of Western civilization in that respect. That great truth of the one God, man made in the Imago Dei, the goodness of creation, uh, was revolutionary. Uh, no surrounding culture in the Middle East, uh, all of which were polytheistic, uh, had, had a comparable notion as to these very things. The other ancient lineage I point to, of course, is uh, ancient Greece mm -hmm. and the discovery of philosophy, what Benedict XVI called the gift of the Greeks, reason. The idea that reason can apprehend reality, that it can know the truth, it can distinguish between opinion and truth, that it discerns in that reality an order that is rational that led the earliest philosophers we know of, the pre-Socratics, and here I particularly refer to Heraclitus, Anaximander, to wonder, how can this be? We, we are able, because of our reason, to apprehend this rational order, but from where did that rational order come? They speculate that it, it must have come from a divine intellect of which these things are an expression. And so for the first time that we know of in history, they used that Greek word logos to describe the divine intellect. Now, we also know that from ancient Greece, the notion of natural law arose describing this rational order in nature and ideas of justice and the, and the notion that what is just transcends any particular city or political order, that what is just must be just everywhere for everyone at all times. Otherwise, it's something other than justice. It's just an expression of force or power. They believed in the primacy of reason, that man ought to be ruled by his reason. And how ought the reasonable man to live? We find out by reading Aristotle's ethics. If we know man's nature, we know that he is directed toward the good. That the only thing that can fulfill him is the good. 
and that he can only achieve that good, go in the direction toward it through a life of virtue. They also thought that that life of virtue was the only foundation for happiness. So there you have hugely significant, through the use of natural reason, all of these profound foundational truths. I next, as you know, deal with Christian revelation, that astonishing announcement at the beginning of the Gospel of St. John, which of course was written in Greek, in the beginning was the word, in the beginning was logos. And the logos was with God and the logos is God. And all things were made through him. Through whom? Through logos. Now we know why the Greeks speculated as to a divine intellect whom they called logos because that is how God identifies himself. He is reason in his essence. Even more profoundly in that revelation of the incarnation, God is love. He is infinite love. He is sacrificial love. Logos enters into creation and redeems it through the sacrifice of Christ's life. Now, what does this mean? What is the significance of this for our story? It's of the most profound. Ancient man was thought of as possessing paltry significance. He was the subject of fate, a plaything of the gods. He was here today, he was gone tomorrow. He had paltry significance all of a sudden in this blinding Christian revelation. Each individual person assumes this extraordinary worth. Why? Because each person is the object of this infinite divine love. So profound was this revelation and became the foundation of a new civilization. And another feature of this, which has tremendous significance for the American founding and for constitutional government, is that each person's access to the divine is through Christ. Each person does have a personal relationship with God. The state is no longer the mediator of that relationship. Ancient man did not presume that he had a relationship with the divine, only the divine or semi-divine ruler of his city or of the empire, the Pharaoh. They were the only ones who had access. They were the only ones who could say those prayers that might bring, bring a, a, an abundant harvest or that might defeat the enemy armies. Therefore, the state, the empire had huge significance for ancient man, he only existed within it. He had no standing outside of it. 
Now, in Christian revelation, he has that standing, that state, that political order is, is, has no salvific means. It is not his vehicle for achieving salvation. That's done quite outside the political order. So here we have the first teaching that has within it an inherent limitation of the state. Forever the state is diminished because of the revelation of Christianity. It can no longer presume to embody that only relationship to the divine or to some claim that it is the salvific vehicle for man. So, that led to the idea of limited government. So you've, you've talked about the Jewish contribution, the book of Genesis and creation. Creation is good, creation by God, man made in the divine image. You've talked about the contribution of, of the Greeks and the philosoph and philosophy, the reason and uh, reason orienting us towards the good and so on. And, and Christianity brings together those elements in the Logos, the word, John 1, 1, and that God loves each and every one of us and that, that, that God's claim on us is absolute and the state doesn't have the, the competence, as it were, to exercise that mediating role between God and the human person. Uh, which you've described as the basis for the notion of limited government. So that's a that's a huge contribution. We can see the connection between those elements and the founding. So I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I, I wanted to kind of summarize that for people, especially people who may have come late to the conversation. Oh, thank you for Mark. I think that's exactly right. The other thing I would mention is that since within Christianity, each person is of inestimable worth. How we treat other human beings becomes even more significant, the respect they are owed, that they, their persons are inviolate. inviolate. I, I suggested that the origin of any notion of human rights was in Genesis. Indeed it is, but you know, Judaism was a tribal religion, not a universal religion. Christianity universalized Jewish monotheism and this notion of the Imago Dei. And I'd say deepened it precisely in the ways uh, in which we have spoken. Certainly you'd have to say that the origins of the United States were Greco-Judeo-Christian in the ways in which we've been speaking. So this takes us probably up to fourth century, where <laughs> we got Christianity, it becomes a religion of the Roman Empire. Um, and, and somebody might say, well, you know, you're talking about Christianity and how uh, the state is limited and so on. And yet when Christians convert the Roman Empire, it becomes a Christian state. Where is this idea of limited government there? Is, doesn't, doesn't the state seem to be taking on this mediating role again? Uh, no. I, I would, you know, there's a famous um, doctrine called the two swords. 
the two swords teaching uh, was a, a Christian teaching. Of course, it has its origins in uh, Christ's famous remark, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Well, what did that mean as it uh, manifested itself in uh, a political order that uh, was Christianized to the extent to which the Roman Empire became, uh, was converted? And of course, not everyone in the empire was converted. But uh, Pope Gelasius made this clear in his letter to the Roman emperor, spelling out the two swords teaching, saying that I would not claim to instruct you in your exercise of political power because you have autonomy in that sphere. And, and your authority uh, you know, comes from God, as all authority does. And this is the nature of that authority you exercise. But I, as Christ's representative uh, on earth and as the head of his church, have a spiritual authority in the manners proper to the church. So there's an ecclesiastical sword and there is a secular sword. And those two domains are, you know, in some sense, complementary. Uh, historically, uh, we know they were competitive because uh, Christianity developed this historically unique uh, arrangement of a dual sovereignty over the same subjects. So that the person, whether it's in that late Roman Empire or in the emerging medieval Christian political order um, was ruled by a secular sovereign. He was ruled by, in spiritual matters, an ecclesiastical sovereign. And those two sovereignties uh, limited each other so that the ecclesiastical would not try to take over the political or the political of the ecclesiastical. That created a wonderful, a, a, a wider space within which man could be free as he was. In your book, you talk about medieval constitutionalism. How does that fit into these two realms, the relationship between these two realms and the, uh, the underpinnings of the American founding? This was, I'd say, an, an astonishing uh, discovery for me, Mark, as I slaved away on this book and researched and looked into some things that I had never uh, examined so deeply before. And I'm sure it will be a surprise to many of the readers of this book, as it was a surprise to me as I was learning this, that all of the constitutional principles that we recognize today had their origins in the medieval world, and even more surprising, they had their origin in the canon law of the church at the time, as it developed from, say, the late 11th century onward. Right, what a big surprise. But it is within canon law that we see articulated 
the requirement of consent. Now, why would why would they get into issues like this in canon law after after all? It's because the church created the first corporations. The notion of a corporation was uniquely Catholic and, this, and, and had it or, its origin in, in the medieval period. How would these corporations conduct themselves? I'm speaking now of the ecclesiastical corporations, whether they were in dioceses or uh, church councils or whether they were in religious orders like the Dominicans. How, how were they to rule themselves? And the canonists pulled out a principle from the Code of Justinian, you know, which had been rediscovered and was being closely examined, a matter that pertained only to Roman private law that said, and I won't give the Latin, I just what touches all must be approved by all, which meant... In this private law, it meant the trustees of a piece of land or the trustees of a minor child or something. Um, for the disposition of that land, they they all had to they had to all the trustees had to agree, which had probably two or three trustees. They had to agree. We'd so, use today. We'd probably use the expressions of stakeholders. Stakeholders, yes, and surprisingly, the canonists in the Middle Ages, took this private law uh, and, and expanded it into a public principle. And it was expressed explicitly in church councils, repeated by popes, uh, adopted by religious orders, that what touches all must be approved by all. What did that mean? It meant and to go directly to the relationship with the American founding, it meant no taxation uh, without representation because many of the most contentious matters that arose had to do with funds for the church, for education, um, uh, for the diocese, uh, for the consistories, etc. And that money, that that taxation, that um, that could not be appropriated without the consents of the people from whom it was appropriated. That's what the principle meant. But it extended to other things as well. And but let's give a little example from the Dominican order uh, and its conduct by both Saint Dominic and for for those his successors. Um, they would have uh, the uh, meetings of all the ch chapters, uh, Dominican chapters, in which they had to decide a number of things. How was this going to be done? Well, St. Dominic said each chapter should elect a representative because the matters must be approved by all or by at least a majority of all because what is decided will affect everyone. So each of the Dominican chapters would elect a representative and the representative was invested with the authority to uh, vote on these issues for them and they would be bound by that. 
And so such decisions would be taken, would take place. And, and St. Dominic and his successors themselves said, this is sovereign. What is decided by these meetings uh, it applies to us all. We must all be subject to it. So you had, let's say, you know, it was, a, it was the rule of law, but the law was formed through the consent of those to whom the law applied, and it applied to everyone. So, so we have there, you know, the the, the beginnings in, in in West in the Western society, the beginnings of the idea of consent of the governed, and in in a con and in a context in which we have representation. So you've got consent and you've got representation. A lot of people will think of the Middle Ages, though, as they think of the ages of kings, and and sometimes they will think of the the notion of kingship as involving the divine right of kings. And you talk about that in the book in, in some depth and you clear up misconceptions people have sometimes in thinking that somehow the divine right of kings is, is a Catholic notion. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it was alien to Catholic thought and it was completely alien to the Middle Ages. Um, let me more generally uh, address the rest of the constitutional issues sure. that were broadly uh, taught and accepted in the Middle Ages by its greatest philosophers and theologians, including Thomas Aquinas. God, of course, is sovereign. All authority comes from God. But in whom does God invest this authority on earth? when it comes to political rule. Does God invest it directly in the king? In which case we have the divine right of kings or does God invest it in the people through whose consent a king is created or a republic is created or whatever other forms of government may be legitimately consented to and the answer was, popular sovereignty is invested in the people. That is why their consent is required in their rule, which, by the way, is the rule of reason, because all people are free and equal and invested with reason, and they're to, they're to live by their reason, which means by those moral rules. So that's you know, a kind of natural equality. They're all human beings. These yes, there's a natural equality. You know, um, Thomas Aquinas made that famous statement about sin. What What is sin? It's doing what is unreasonable. Mm -hmm. The great Catholic teaching is behaving reasonably is behaving morally. And so this, this was a, a, a broadly accepted notion within that medieval Christian world. So you had equality, popular sovereignty, the requirement of consent, uh, the right to representation so that consent may be expressed. And the other thing that you had that was 
universally accepted was the right to revolution. Should the king not keep his compact with the people? Should the ruler rule tyrannically? He may be deposed. So the idea there is the king has a uh, he has authority from God, but not directly. He has it through the consent of the people. And he has his authority not to benefit himself, but to, to benefit the people. Yes. And when he acts in a, in a sustained way or a serious way against the good of the people from whom he has authority and for whom he has, is to exercise authority, the people have a right to alter or abolish that government. Exactly. The king has his power from the people provisionally in so long in so far as and so long as he keeps his compact with the people or his covenant with the people that was that was the teaching in the middle ages and the notion of the divine right of kings or an absolute political sovereign was totally alien to it all right well so then how do we get from there to the American founding. You've done a good job of giving us sort of foundational principles and ideas. How do we get, so we're, we're talking about now, we're in the 16th century or thereabouts, and we go from there to the 18th century and the American founding in uh, North America. How do we get from there to there? Well, I think, Mark, the question quite reasonably is, why didn't we just go from there to there? I mean, why, why wasn't, uh, why was there an American founding uh, necessary in the first place? Why didn't the logical development of these constitutional principles continue? Very good. They didn't continue. There was, uh, there, there was a loss of them, in fact, a denial of their legitimacy. Now, as you know, in the book, I talk about the effect of the Reformation, more specifically about Luther. Mm -hmm. But it's not to peg this problem on a Protestant, because it has its origin in another Catholic priest, William of Ockham. Ah. So we're dealing now with the late Middle Ages, when William of Ockham changes the theological understanding of God that was prevalent in the Middle Ages, and who, let us say, severs the longstanding relationship between the Christian understanding of God and Aristotelianism. It was a revolt against the Aristotelian influence on the church, which was so superbly expressed in the thought of Thomas Aquinas. So Aristotelianism, meaning the philosophy of Aristotle, which yeah. St. Thomas in the 13th century helps right. recover and apply in a consistently Christian way. Yes. and that. Um, preserves and, and further develops and explains what is this natural law, what is this this rule of reason. Now, Occam and thinkers like him said, no, 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 uh, the, 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 the thing about God's essence on which we 
what which we must emphasize is that he is pure will and power. He is not constrained by this thing called reason. Not only he's not constrained by any laws of nature. There are no such laws. There can't be any laws of nature if there's no nature. And that's basically what Occam says. He was uh, what you call a voluntarist. That's the technical theological term for someone who believes that God's essence is pure will and power. What he, by, by, by saying this, he flipped the relationship that St. Thomas had insisted upon, that in God, uh, the divine intellect rules, reason rules, and the will follows. God wills according to his reason and consistent with his nature. Right. Thank you. Because why? Because he's Logos. Occam flips that relationship and says, no, no, no. Uh, God's will rules and reason follows in some instrumental way, you know. So it's the will. And now what happens when the will becomes primary in the, in the way in which Occam made it? Um, creation loses its intelligibility because it's no longer invested with these laws of nature, which made it apprehensible. Everything is thought to be just the direct expression of God's will, and God can change his will at any moment. He's, he, he, there's no law of nature that can prevent him. There's no sort of internal consistency within God that prevents him from just flipping everything over. As Occam infamously said, God could require us to hate him. Right. And we'd have to do it. This, of course, is an, abs this is an absurdity to, to a Thomist or any uh, conventional uh, medieval Christian thinker. Now, I've, the problem is uh, with Luther, as far as the American founding goes, uh, is, is not that Luther was a Protestant, is that he was a voluntarist, an anomalist. Uh, and what did that lead to in Luther's thought? <clears throat> it led him to a denigration that, of Aristotle that is truly uh, surprising. <laughs> it's, if you read what he says, which is, you know, I put it in the book, it's a shocker. He denigrates Thomas Aquinas as well. He says the worst book ever written is the ethics, that he would have thought that Aristotle was the devil if, if he if wasn't known he was a human being, uh, that it's Aristotelian thought that made true theological thinking impossible, um, that um, there are let me be more specific about the problems this led him to in the very constitutional principles we laid out. Luther denied popular sovereignty. The people are not sovereign. He denied the requirement of consent. The people's consent is not required in their rule. <clears throat> Therefore, they have no right to representation. And you won't be surprised 
that Luther denies the right to revolution against tyranny. Poof, there it goes. And now, Luther said many things, and I do understand after 1630, he modified his views on the right to revolution. Uh, but, and, and also, this is the other problem. Luther, of course, had his doctrine of sola scriptura, scripture alone, sola fide, faith alone, sola gratia, gratia, grace alone. He denied um, and burnt in public the canon law of the church. He basically destroyed the corporation of the church. By, de by, by destroying the institutional church, Luther took away one of the two swords. He that that is he did that and that was the practical effect of what he did. He still believed there was a spiritual sovereignty. The only problem now is that it didn't have a church through which to express itself that had any independence of the state. Luther turned to the prince to reform the church. And as you know, as a result of uh, the Lutheran Reformation, the princes became, excuse me, the princes became the heads of the church in their respective uh, kingdoms or uh, dukedoms, et cetera. So, so this, this empowered the prince. The prince now, uh, this this allowed the development of the doctrine of the divine right of kings. There was nothing in its way. And uh, we saw that divine right of kings developed and articulated in James I in England and in the greatest defender and expositor of the divine right of kings, Sir Robert Filmer, in his famous book, Patriarcha, the, the king was appointed directly by God. He was not accountable to his people. The king uh, made the law, but the king was above the law. There was no right to revolution, of course. All right. Uh, so we're, uh, Bob, okay. I don't want to interrupt you because this is so rich. And, and I said before we got started, it was dangerous for me to be interviewing you uh, because I could go on for hours with this. But I want to push you on this point, in, partly in the interest of time, uh, but also just so that people can see the connections here better. How do we get to this, to the American Revolution? And why is it that the critics of America's founding, and we'll talk mainly about the Catholic critics now, why is it the, the critics of the American founding who see the American founding as a poison pill that, you know, time release, as you said, all the bad things that we have today are simply the working out of the poison of that pill over time. Why is it they're wrong, especially in light of what you've told us thus far? Well, I'll I don't know how much time we have left, Mark, so I'll just try to compress things and jump ahead. Um, as you know, there was a... Uh, English Revolution against the Stuart monarchy. And over the years, it was Parliament that uh, became the supreme institution in uh, British life. 
Now, uh, the American colonies, uh, most had royal charters. Um, they ruled themselves to almost a complete extent <clears throat> for around 150 years uh, when they became quite habituated, uh, habituated to self-rule. They taxed themselves, etc. cetera. Um, but they thought of themselves as Englishmen and as enjoying the rights of Englishmen. It's when Parliament tried to exercise absolute power over the colonies that the colonists began to think, hmm, how, what we're, we're going to say, no, no, we have the same rights as Englishmen and you cannot tax us without our consent. Famously, no taxation without representation. In fact, they quoted exactly in Latin uh, the principle of uh, from first from the Justinian Code and then in uh, Church Canon Law, and then more broadly in the early parliaments. What uh, affects all must be uh, consented to by all. They thought that this was the definition of tyranny. And as such, they had a right to revolution. They knew they had to articulate that right in a more philosophical, universal way than simply saying we've been denied the rights of Englishmen because those were precisely the rights that Englishmen would not recognize them as having. Thus the preamble in the Declaration of Independence that under the laws of nature and of nature's God, all men are invested by their creator with certain inalienable rights, right? Life, liberty, etc. cetera. And um, since they were being ruled without their consent, and there's a long list, as you know, of grievances in the Declaration of Independence, they call upon under divine providence, and with God as their supreme judge, uh, the right to revolution, and therefore they declare their independence. Now, what this clearly is, is a revolution against state absolutism and a return to the medieval constitutional principles that had been violated. The founding was a restoration of the primacy of reason as against the primacy of will, as it had been expressed in the British Parliament that said that we have the power to rule you in all cases whatsoever without your consent. That's what led ultimately to the American Revolution. As you know, the American founding, as it developed constitutionally in 1787, came up with a unique form of limited government, a unique form of dual sovereignty. Uh, people were ruled by two governments, a federal government and their state government. Uh, the, the state, um, the, at least the federal government to begin with, was to have no power, no spiritual powers or claims. 
It was a Christian founding, very much so, uh, in the extent that this government was limited, that this very Christian founding did not look to government as a salvific means. They looked to Christ and their churches for those means. The government was not to trample in that territory. As you know, the Constitution was dated in the year of our Lord. The Constitution contains a provision that exempts Sunday from the 10 days in which a law must be signed by the president or automatically become law. It was a Christian nation. I contrast that, Mark, with the French Revolution, which was premised upon, or at least in its most radical expression, which is what I talk about, because the Jacobins, after all, took over the French Revolution, was based on the premise of the perfectibility of man here, now, in this world. And we would obtain the means through power to perfect man, ourselves. And the principal obstacle to that project of self-perfection is, guess what? It's Christianity. It's the church. Therefore, it must be destroyed. Therefore, the French Revolution went about a thorough de-Christianization campaign in France, uh, shutting down the religious orders, uh, expelling the priests and nuns, uh, executing a number of them, taking the crosses off of graveyards, uh, off of steeples, um, turning churches into temples of reason, etc. All we have to do is ask ourselves, can you imagine during the American Revolution there being a de-Christianization campaign in the right. American colonies or the early, early United States? There would never have been. Tocqueville uh, later gives the answer. He said, in Europe, you know, we've always had this incompatibility between faith and reason, or at least in, you know, a modern Europe. Uh, but in the uh, United States, <clears throat> we find that they're they're compatible. In fact, the you one you you hardly talk about one without talking about the other. So this reconciliation of faith and reason, which had again been a tremendous feature of the Middle Ages, was achieved in in the United States. Um so let me let me ask a question about this and this is partly related to what some of the critics say. Um in the 19th century, there is within Catholic circles, especially in, in the Vatican, uh, various things, going back to Pius IX, various things, early Pius IX, there's a little bit more sympathetic, but over time, Pius IX, the Pope, uh, makes statements that, uh, that come across as very anti-democratic, we'll say. At least they're interpreted that way. And... Um, and I think it's fair to say that there are a number of theoreticians in the church at the time reflecting on papal teaching and other things who are cool to the idea of democracy, at least in the sense of uh, uh, universal suffrage or more general suffrage and, and, and participatory government, things of that sort. Um, 
Benedict XVI talks a little bit about this when he reflects on the development of doctrine and the no development of the notion of uh, religious liberty, where he says the church had to, the church was often looking at these things through the eyes of the French Revolution. And it took a while for the church to understand, well, there was another revolution, the American Revolution, and that was not a revolution that was antithetical to faith, but was actually uh, compatible, that there was a close in uh, uh, convenience, as the medievals would say, between faith and reason. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and of course, Benedict XVI isn't the only one uh, who said that. John Paul II uh, said it in very powerful and eloquent way. Now, you, I think you're right to point out that in certain respects, the church was a latecomer to uh, democratic constitutional rule. And some of the reasons are historical because of what's called the marriage of cross and crown, that the church became identified with um, the rule of kings, that it became just about as dependent upon a Catholic monarch as the, Pro the Protestant Lutheran churches were upon the prince, you know, their princes or their kings. And the reason this happened is exactly because of the Reformation. Uh, those places which remained Catholic had to do with the suffrage of a Catholic prince or Catholic king. It, it became, they became dependent upon the royal rule. Um, and, and certain Catholic monarchs, one thinks of Louis XIV, uh, were only too happy to Ha, uh, you know, have their own version of the divine right of kings. So it's, it's you know, that's, that's mixed. But I think we need to talk of the American experience in the church. <clears throat> and that brings us to John Carroll, who was a member of the most famous fam, one of the most famous families, certainly the most famous Catholic family in the colonies in Maryland, um, his brother, I mean, sorry, his cousin, Charles Carroll, was the only Catholic signer of the Declaration of Independence and was possibly the wealthiest man in the colonies and who put his fortune at the disposal of the American Revolution and, of course, his life. John Carroll, as a priest, went with Benjamin Franklin to Canada to try to elicit Canadian support, indeed even participation in the revolution against the British, that, that failed. But uh, John Carroll wrote to the Vatican after the American Revolution, a very moving letter saying, this is the best news the church has ever had in, 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 this, in the American colonies, because we are to be afforded the greatest uh, religious liberty. And we owe therefore to this political order, uh, our allegiance. Um, he became of course the first Bishop and he continued to express uh, his admiration for the American founding and its principles. 
there's a very funny exchange when uh, a letter goes from Bishop Carroll to Jefferson asking if it would uh, present any problems if a French bishop was appointed down in the Louisiana area. And he's answered by the Secretary of State, who was Madison, I think, at the time, who said the president uh, is very grateful for your uh, your kind letter and expression, but please understand, <laughs> we we would not think it proper to express ourselves on this matter because we 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 have no 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 authority or jurisdiction. This is entirely the your decision decision of your church. Yeah, that question, of course, comes out of a context where. The expectation of church leaders is that the political authority will have a, an interest or a say in who gets appointed where. And, and in the American Republic, uh, it was made clear that, that this was outside their jurisdiction. They didn't have a have a right to say or an authority to say. Yeah, it's Bob, a rest, the restitution of the two swords teaching. Right. Well, this is fascinating. Wish we had more time to go into this. Maybe we'll we'll follow this up with a subsequent uh, discussion of, of the topic because there's so much more in your book, America on Trial. I got to hold up the book, Bob. America on Trial: A Defense of the Founding. We've given people a tremendously rich background to begin. To, there you go to begin to understand <laughs> the American founding and and this notion that you have of America. Founding not not as a revolution in the sense of a of a wholly radical break from the past. Sometimes language about America establishing a new order and all of that can give the impression that this is a wholly radical break from everything that's preceded. But you've done a great job of helping us understand the sense in which we can see that at the at the core of the American founding is there is this notion of a restoration, restoration of this rich. Uh, heritage that we have uh, in the West with respect to things such as popular sovereignty, representative government, limited government, and constitutionalism. So I want to thank you very much for taking the time uh, with us uh, to talk about this. Here we are in the, at the uh, almost at the vigil of uh, Independence Day. I think it's great for our viewers, our listeners to reflect on what you said, to go out and get a copy of your book and to begin reading so that we can make fully our own the heritage, the rich heritage that we have as Americans. So I want to thank you very much for being with us. Wonderful, Mark. Thank you so much. God bless you. This podcast has been brought to you by Ignatius Press. We encourage you to check out our books and videos at your local Catholic bookstore or wherever else books and videos are sold. You can also sign up to receive special discounts on books and videos at ignatius.com. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please like the podcast on the website or app from which you listen to it. And please tell your friends about it. I'm Mark Brumley, and on behalf of everyone at Ignatius Press, thanks for listening.